0: Welcome to another episode of Unburden Your Health. In today's day and age, we are recognizing more and more about the effects that our bodies are having with what we put inside them. People are also recognizing the benefits of using alternative medicine over mainstream medicine. Even healthcare professionals are becoming more open to the benefits it can have for the body. The guest for my show today. Is a renowned expert in the field of homeopathy, Dr. Divya Chabra. Dr. Divya and I have been friends for close to almost 50 years and ever since we moved into the same building living across the floor from each other, we have constantly been challenging, fighting and pushing each other and I can't imagine a better friend than Divya over these last 50 years. Divya was introduced to homeopathy at the age of seven months when a severe colic was instantly relieved and a looming laparotomy was averted. She's always been a bright student, and we used to always compete who would come first uh, in our class. And that continued when she received a gold medal uh, from CMP Homeopathic Medical College, after which she did her MD from DKMM Homeopathic Medical College. To date, 10 new homeopathic remedies have been researched by her, which are now being used all over the world. Her unwavering dedication to her patients and the research and the search for the bullseye simulam, which is the perfect constitutional homeopathic remedy for the patient, is matched by her zeal for teaching all that she knows to the practitioners and students of homeopathy for almost 30 years now. Divya, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Dr. Sanjay. Great pleasure to be here, and a lot
0: of fun to be able to talk to you like this. So I know when you know we both completed our class twelve, and uh, as always, you've been such a bright student. But you chose homeopathy over, you know, allopathy. I chose allopathy. I chose MBBS, but you prefer to, you know, venture into homeopathy. You want to take our listeners as to why? What was the real reason? that you prefer to choose homeopathy? So basically, the
1: person responsible for this is a homeopath called Dr. Raib Bishambar Das, who came from Pakistan to India, Delhi, with my grandfather during the partition time. He was by, his hobby was homeopathy, and he had a charitable clinic, and he used to give homeopathy to many patients. He has a wonderful book called Select Your Remedy, which is available on Amazon. So my grandfather, my my mother's father brought up my entire mother's family on homeopathy through right. Dr. Das. And when me and my brother were born, obviously this continued right from when we were Pune and when we came to Mumbai. All through my growing years, that's all I've seen. Right. I've seen my father who has a strong family history of diabetes, his sugar spiking for the first time. And then becoming normal purely with homeopathy and staying normal. At that time, it didn't seem anything unusual to me. It's only later I realized what happened. He had paratyphoid, typhoid. typhoid, And I saw the homeopathic remedy being given. And so when I had to choose a stream of medicine, and by then already it had become a proper graduate degree. This was the field that I naturally gravitated to. I always knew I wanted to be a doctor. It's one of those lucky things I have that from childhood, I knew that I want to be a doctor. And um, this seemed to be the field that naturally I would
0: choose. Sure. I mean, I could have actually thought about uh, elocution being an extremely powerful speaker, uh, throw ball player, besides so many other things. And I'm sure you have a full life even today. But uh, tell us, you know, over these last 30 years, uh, what's been your experience in homeopathy? And if you were to maybe highlight some of the key differences that homeopathy brings to the table as compared to, you know, traditional or other alternative medicines, what is it that makes homeopathy so much more attractive today?
1: So when I got into homeopathy, it was just because that's what I knew and that's what I saw and I saw the results. But as I moved and started learning and watching the practice of homeopathy, two of my other interests that had actually started towards 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th, seemed to come into this area very luckily for me. And one was neurology, the study of the brain. And the other is the what makes us tick, the psychology of the human being. And so homeopathy being a holistic medicine had, as I learned it, I saw and realized that it's not just about the sugar pills and the fact that it doesn't have side effects, but that it incorporates mind, body, the psychology, the medicine, the physiology, as well as the brain to see what the disease process is and choose the remedy according to that. So homeopathy is basically started by Samuel Hahnemann from Germany, a doctor himself who this was the time when modern medicine was the time of leeches and venesections. And he was pretty frustrated with this kind of practice. So he stopped practice and began translating medicine textbooks into different languages. It is said he knew about 11 languages. So as he was translating one that is called Culin's Materia Medica, and he was in the process of translating, the story goes that he read that uh, malaria is cured by quinine because it is bitter. And this didn't make sense to him. And in what could only be considered a quantum leap, of consciousness or thought, he took that quinine to see what happens to him. Oh, okay. And as he took the quinine and he began to notice the symptoms in his body, he suddenly seemed to recognize that he was getting, without getting the malarial parasite, getting symptoms like periodic fevers, intermittent fevers and the chills and symptoms okay. similar to that of malaria. Okay. So he tried this with some other medicines that were commonly being used, like belladonna for scarlet fever at that time, right? Okay. And he found this happening in with other medical substances that he began to use. Of course, he's probably read about the principle. But based on this, he founded the hypothesis that do the medicines that cure the patient work? because they are similar in effect to the symptoms that the disease organism produces, which is completely, which is the other side of the antipathic form of medicine. And so the founding principle of homeopathy is similia similibus curenta, which superficially or simply means likes let likes be cured by likes. But what it means is that when that medicinal substance is taken by a healthy person and they note the entire symptom, new symptom group that they develop. Right. And when that same group of symptoms together is seen in a patient with a disease, then that medicine, when given to that patient, will affect the cure. That. Okay matching remedy is yes. the similimum because it is matching the symptoms produced in the healthy person to the symptoms in that disease person that's the first principle the second is that the medicines are highly diluted uh, the third principle is that when we are prescribing these medicines we prescribe it on a very individual symptom basis what that means is if a patient comes to us with a group of symptoms, first we are noticing the common symptoms, common meaning what would be expected with that disease pathology. Right. And then we are seeing what are those symptoms which are not expected, which are not common or not diagnostic of the organ pathology. Sure. Because those symptoms then come from the individual's expression of something disordered which is primary and resulting in that disease. So this is the process of individualization. Very simply I'll tell you if somebody comes with a huge boil right Right. and you're a severe pain and the part looks red shiny red he's complaining of severe burning pain over there. But if you touch that part your expectation is this is going to be hot to touch because he's got burning pain, it's red, it's shiny. But if you touch it and it's cold to touch, now this becomes a symptom that doesn't make sense in the entire pathology and becomes an individualizing, individualizing symptom, which we would use along with the common symptoms to find that particular medicine. Because in homeopathy, for a particular disease pathology, like if we said typhoid, there would not be one remedy. We would have close to 1000 medicines from the repertoire to choose. And therefore, we have to choose the the remedy for the person matching his common symptoms of typhoid. But those symptoms that are not expected in typhoid, they are individual to him. They are, they are peculiar to him and that would then give us the choice between those thousand medicines to pick so sure. the three principles being the matching of the similars the dilutional of the remedy and the third is the choice of the remedy on the individualizing symptom so this kind of is really the bedrock on which Understood. and Understood. primarily uh, although there are some variations but the primary aim is we're choosing often, even if a person has two or three problems, right. we are looking at a deeper point from and looking at the outer symptoms as ultimate results. Like right? we studied in pathology, functional changes, perceived structural changes. So right. we're looking at what we are seeing as when the patient comes to us as really the almost the end result of a process that has started before and we are trying to find usually just one remedy that covers that entire gamut of symptoms and matching that to the symptoms
0: so i think this uh, you know i think gives me an insight about the whole concept of history taking and you know while history taking is such an important aspect in any field of medicine but i have seen that in homeopathy it probably holds uh, a very significant part of the diagnostic uh, approach. You know, you also take a a video recording of the person and I guess your interest in uh, the psychosomatic aspect, the neurological aspect, and as you just explained, you know, how it is individualized, the treatment is individualized. I think that probably explains the kind of emphasis uh, I have seen you put And I think most homeopaths perhaps put on history taking, you know, so maybe you could just give a little bit of an insight on, you know, what is the diagnostic approach that you take? You know, history taking is one of those. Uh, And I also know that you refer to a lot of books where, you know, you have lots of choices where you have to match, you know, uh, individualized symptoms to various uh, options of drugs, but maybe you could simplify that for the audience. How do you exactly, what is your approach for, you know, Arriving at a diagnosis.
1: So basically the evolution of medicine and homeopathy from the time of Han- Hanuman to today has kind of moved in a parallel. Right. So where we are today is recognizing all over, we are recognizing that mind and body is one. Right. And we are also, we also recognize that things that are happening to us which we are consciously aware of, there is also another part of a process that we are not aware of, that we are unconscious of. Now that could, you could consider that like the unconscious of Freud and Jung and whoever come after that. But today it is beyond that. And it actually goes to the actual brain matter where The entire body functions are recognized to be, we know this, right? It's controlled from parts of our brain, the medulla, oblongata, the pons, all that is controlling body functions. We also know our fight and flight mechanism is part of that part of our brain, which is automatic and hence unconscious in its function. And on the other hand, there is that part of the brain that is conscious, that we think that we are using for our cognitive abilities. So on one hand, there is this recognition today that when we are talking of mind-body medicine, psychosomatic, it's no longer a unit, a separate thing altogether. Because ultimately, right. we are recognizing today that mind and body is one. And the the, the um, advances in medicine that are there for it is the uh, So the PNEI system, the psycho-neuro-endocrine-immunological system, for which yeah. a lot of people have received Nobel Prizes since 1970. This system is kind of really the bedrock of where I think understanding the human body has gone today. Sure. Uh, there have been experiments that were done, um, that there is Candice Pert, who found the neurotransmitters, Receptors, And she found the same receptors in the brain as exist in our immune cells. The macrophages and lymphocytes have the same neuroreceptors. So the neurotransmitters that affect the brain also affect your immune system. It has also been found in the endocrine system. The same nerve compositions that go into the immune cells also go uh, from the brain to the endocrine. Sure. There's um, another uh, person who then in 1970s did the experiments where he found that this system, which was, is not a linear system. So it doesn't go like brain affects the nerves, affects the hormones, affects the immunity. It, there's a backflow between all of these. Right. It moved further today to people now, the gastroenterologist very excited about PNEI because now the gut is the second brain. Correct. Because they found the same receptors in the gut that are in the brain, the same neurotransmitters. And sure. to just make it neurotransmitters sounds like a really big word, but actually we are all talking about it in our world today. So two kinds, one is the neurotransmitters. We all talk about like serotonin, dopamine, you know, histamine, adrenaline. Everybody has been talking about it, normal people. And that is one group of neurotransmitters. And then you have all the hormones, the thyroid, oxytocin, all these come under the neuropeptides. So what was considered endocrine or hormones is actually part of this whole neuropeptide system. So what we see is that the entire change that occurs first, occurs in this axis. Something is going wrong in this axis. And then the result is the function of the organ starts going haywire. And ultimately, you see it in the pathology like a swelling or you'll see it in actual blood tests or actual development of symptoms. So when we are looking at it, we are looking at the symptoms that exist today. But we are tracing it back to the changes where it originated from. That is at this psycho endocrine immunological system. So when we take the history, we will take the history of the patient on his lifestyle, his perceptions of things, his uh, cravings and aversion, sure. thermal modalities, the overall metabolism, sleep right. patterns individual digestive symptoms the hormonal the periods and other hormonal symptoms even if the person doesn't complain of a problem there right, because yeah. we are looking for that subtle thing sure. which is happening where you haven't even re- you haven't it hasn't come out yet into the system it's not
0: yet manifested, not yet manifested.
1: so we'll take all this the mental symptom what do they feel what do they get angry about because when we say stress today now we recognize that stress definitely causes like when we say diabetes and hypertension is lifestyle what we basically mean is what we've recognized is the sugar rush in our system a blood pressure going up in our system is a natural function of our autonomic nervous system and its response comes from chimpanzee time to us And the response was meant when we were men in the jungle and a tiger comes to attack you. So when our system goes into survival mode, sugar floods the system, the blood pressure goes up and the immune system shuts down because you don't need it at that time. If the tiger is going to kill you, your immunity is not going to help. So you just need to run for your life at that time. You need your blood pressure, pulse rate, sugars to be at the peak so your muscles can use this to the peak. Now, this was meant when tigers come once in a while, if you lived in the wild. But as we've evolved into the homo sapien of today, and we have this new neocortex that is like a new hard drive, there's no stress fight and flight system there. But we are surrounded by external stresses all the time. Covid, financial, your child's exam, your staff has not come, your car is malfunctioning, all kinds of things, computer malfunctions, everything right. is a stress. And if your perception of that thre- stress right. is high, it's going to go into this autonomic nervous system. And then you're going to go into survival mode. Right. And if this persists, you're in a loop. You're never going to relax. Your Opposite system, the vagus, the parasympathetic isn't going to allow you to calm down. right? And then you're going to stay in that and ultimately get blood pressure, etc. So sure. when we look at it, we are looking at it in two ways. There is a stress that is there actually that exists, which right. we all have. Then there is your perception of that stress. Sure. right? And then that is at your conscious level. But there are so many people who will come to you and They don't feel stressed. They're not feeling stressed. But their blood pressures are high. Their sugars are off the charts. Because though they are not consciously perceiving this stress, their fight and flight mode, which they are unaware of, they are not in control of this, is in that survival mode. And they don't know about it. Because this is the automatic part, the delegated part of our brain that we don't look at. So we are not aware of it.
0: It's almost the subconscious part of The
1: unconscious or the subconscious, right? So because of the whole psychological connotation, I just use the automatic brain because that's more a concrete rather than an abstract element. And that's when our system is constantly at a toss. Our immunity is down. Our blood pressure is high. Our sugar is high. Consciously, we're not aware of it. And hence... Dreams play a very big role in the homeopathic case-taking. Because the dreams is when... So like we talked of these two brains, they function at different frequencies. When we sleep, the frequency of this one drops. This stays as it is. And so we are more aware of the going-ons in this part, which come through as dreams to us, snippets in our dream. And these snippets in the dream could give us important clues... On what the system in this automatic is perceiving. Even though in reality you may feel I really am not stressed. There is nothing happening to me. So the case taking process goes over lifestyle, conscious, cravings aversion, taste, sleep and dreams. Before we can put it all together and see what is the way the system is looking and perceiving this world and what is the way it is responding? Where is it caught in a loop which is resulting in these pathological or microbiological changes?
0: I guess it's so important for people to know the real reasons why first history taking takes almost, what, three hours sometimes? Yeah, and I guess people, you know, always think, why does it take so much? Why are they asking about my dreams? You know, and I guess, you know, people should know that I guess, this is a more holistic approach uh, very contrary to what is traditionally being practiced where super specialization only looks at just one organ and even one part of an organ actually whereas i think homeopathy is looking at the individual very much as a whole and not as an organ system itself so i think that's perhaps the one big difference any other differences that come to light which then allow homeopathy to you know be able to address certain conditions differently or better and I can think of some like chronic conditions like asthma or autoimmune conditions but maybe if you could you know because of this holistic approach uh, is there a preference that homeopathy would work better in some conditions versus the other
1: so that is absolutely the perfect question Sanjay because the difference again is on how we are looking at the human body and the symptom of disease And in reality, I don't think that there is really a difference because that's how we studied it in physiology and pathology. Um, When we speak about it in modern medicine or the patients speak about it, they speak about it in a different manner. So if I would take, say, an allergic condition, asthma, atopic dermatitis, allergic rhinitis, right? Patients would come and say, I'm allergic to dust. I'm allergic to peanut or I'm allergic to the perfume, etc, etc, right? Because they are getting a wheeze or a cough or a sneeze when other people in the room are not getting that same response. So that again, when we look at it in the homeopathic or holistic system, what we are seeing is that the dust or the perfume is not the problem, right? Because when the dust and the perfume becomes a problem, then all the human beings respond like that because that's our natural protective. Right. So we all have this protection that if there's a chemical, too much chemical will itch. If, you, if I throw cement in this room, we'll all cough, we'll all sneeze, we'll all get a bronchoconstriction as a protective mechanism. Right. But like everything in our human system, which is like a computerized uh, biofeedback system, there are thresholds for everything. That's why we have blood tests because we know it should stay within this level. Your cholesterol is here, your sugar is here. The same is for any input of dust or chemical. There is a threshold and as long as that stays beneath the threshold, our system doesn't respond to it because it doesn't damage us. The moment it crosses that threshold, all of us will respond in that same manner. Therefore, an allergic person, his threshold has dropped. Right. Right. So the when the way we look at it is the dust is not the problem, the perfume is not the problem. Your threshold, threshold. in the whole system of working, which is that neuroendocrine immunological system, that threshold has somewhere got altered. There is a right. bug in that computer program. And that is making you respond in that particular way. Like, for example, the simpler example is epilepsy, right? Like the way we studied in physiology, we have constant electrical charge going to all our muscles to keep them toned. It's only when it crosses a threshold, the action potential, that's when the actual muscle movement will happen. In an epileptic person, in that area, that threshold has dropped. So the action potential happens at much lower levels of electrical conduction. And that results in an involuntary movement. So in all these conditions, what we are looking at is not the problem from the outside, right? right. But where is my threshold, where is my system got altered, right? And that it's resulting in this kind of disease pattern. And therefore, my job is to correct that, right? And therefore... Things like asthma, for example, a person who's an asthmatic, later age asthma. Um, Traditionally, we were taught once an asthmatic, always an asthmatic. Once a diabetic, you just stay with the medicine. Once a hypertensive, stay with the medicine. Right. However, unless you come to the point where the person's bronchi already gone into a constricted phase or his arteries are completely calcified, right when we catch it at that early point when it's actually the functional change where the thresholds have got altered right and we correct that then all these so called you can't change it you can't cure it are curable conditions sure. so one big difference is things that in modern medicine would be considered just take medicines and stay in control in homoeopathy we look at them as curable and attempting sure. to cure each of them. Thyroid being the other thing. Like hypothyroid okay. cases. Whether in an autoimmune or idiopathic, Generally right. the thing is okay. Now you have to take it lifelong. Right. But this is one thing where. One of the earliest things that research that was done in homeopathy. And you can get off your thyroid medication. And your thyroid can start functioning.
0: Back to normal. But do you also look at uh, opportunity where. Homeopathy and allopathy work sort of hand in hand, complementary, as you said. Let's take an example of diabetes or hypothyroidism. That initially, they may need to take some allopathy medication to keep the sugars under control or keep the thyroid hormone levels uh, in equilibrium. And homeopathy sort of works in conjunction to bring about that reversal or that cure, uh, but it's sort of complementary with the initial process of maintenance, which is brought in by allopathy. Have you seen that? I mean, is is that a common practice that you do where both sort of work hand in hand?
1: So very often what happens is that patients often come to a homeopath already being on medication for some time, right? right. So the more common situation is that they'd come with medication, they're already on blood pressure medications, diabetic. And therefore, we are naturally already working in conjunction because I'm not going to withdraw it and get a rebound but we are working on it together and slowly bringing it down. The other condition where we work together uh, with um, modern medicine very strongly is in a lot of very very severe cases like cancers for example and there are research studies which as I said I will share the links So for people who are interested, they can see it as well. That There have been studies carried out, uh, which are uh, RCT, double-blind control trials, where the patients were only on the modern medicine chemotherapy for cancer. They were on the chemotherapy with homeopathy and they were on chemotherapy with placebo. And they were um, documented in terms of their symptom, their quality of life. Right. What was not expected was even the life, actual life expectancy. So one of the studies was done in an incurable, the lung, small cell cancers. And uh, so this was one of the studies that was done. So cancers is one where we found that, you know, when there's chemotherapy happening, the side effects have a good response with homeopathy, as well as in conjunction, they are doing good with homeopathy. But otherwise, the ideal for us is if a patient gets the first onset of his sugar or blood pressure, etc. If we start homeopathy at that point, in the pure way, our cure results would be higher and quicker. Because, uh, you see, if a patient comes with hypothyroid, the thyroid is functioning slower, the biofeedback is not working the way it should right. if we are artificially just giving the eltroxin or the thyroxin we are putting the biofeedback into a false sense of complacency that everything is fine in the system i don't need to do anything about it right now right. once every any body is like a machinery and any system that doesn't work it takes much longer to kick start it again and sometimes it doesn't kickstart. So, ideal scenario in these cases would be to pick that scenario right in the beginning. In fact, I remember one case, Sanjay. It's a patient that went to Suburban for his routine checks. And then he called me in a panic because Suburban has always been extremely uh, caring about the patient. So, when there's a problem, they would always call the patient and tell them, you know, go to your GP or whatever. So, this guy was actually driving and somebody called him and told him, what are you doing? He said, I'm driving. He said, are you alone in the car? He said, yes. He said, stop the car on the side because his sugar was 450. Okay. His fasting sugars. So he told him, "Step on, stop on the side of the road and don't drive. You know, are you giddy right. or whatever, whatever. Sure. And because he was naturally concerned that this guy is walking around with this kind of right. sugar. So uh, this guy was not a known diabetic right? And uh, so he called me, he said, what to do? I said, are you feeling anything? He said, no. I said, okay, go home and then call me from there. And we started him on homeopathy straight away with that and didn't put him on any medications. And he stayed for, I mean, even up to now, I think when he now traveled, because he was anxious during COVID, he had for a short time started some with just a 160 sugar. But otherwise, he's been, it's been 10 years now. He has not needed to take any other medication at all. So the ideal situation in these scenarios works like that. But working together with so many cases, like for example, uh, severe radiculopathies and the patient is in severe pain, definitely we need some painkillers, some uh, serratio at that point, you know, to make the patient comfortable while we are at the same time trying to look at that underlying process
0: itself. So I have two questions here. And first one, I guess, is related to, you know, as you said, starting homeopathy right in the beginning. I know many families, including mine, where for tonsillitis, homeopathy has been a primary choice uh, instead of taking antibiotics or instead of opting out for surgery. Um, And this is perhaps one of those acute conditions where you know i have also seen homeopathy perhaps being more effective uh, so it's a little contradictory at sometimes where we find that homeopathy works generally more uh, effectively for chronic conditions but in a condition like tonsillitis homeopathy is often seen as a primary uh, you know choice so maybe you could throw some light on this and then follow that up with you know this whole con- misconception or reality about you know, homeopathy cure generally takes time. It's a, it's a slower process as compared to allopathy. Uh, you know, maybe that can be dovetailed into the same, uh, you know, same question. So over to you for that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, this is a real misconception. And it is that that homeopathic medicines will take time. So if a patient has, say, an acute problem, like a tonsillitis, a bacterial infection, typhoid, urinary tract infections, malaria, right? They would say, oh, at the moment, let me take the allopathic medication. Then I will come to homeopathy to build the immunity, right? The reason for this misconception is because in a lot of scenarios, in many households in India or all over the world, uh, homeopathy has not been the first choice like it was for me. So generally people would come to homeopathy when they've tried other stuff and it's not gone completely, right? And then somebody says, why don't you try it? So they're already coming to homeopathy after taking maybe a year or two of medication, say for a rheumatoid arthritis or psoriasis, one of those really stubborn conditions, right? And then they come or eczemas. Or uh, atopic dermatitis, etc., where they don't want to keep using the steroid any longer. So they no. already come with a timeline that's gone by a year, or two, sometimes even five, ten, and sure. therefore naturally in proportion. When you're going to uh, treat the person, he's going to take six months to get better. It's not going right. to happen. But if you have an acute. Problem Like a tonsillitis, a urinary tract infection, you need to get okay in two or three days. In fact, our challenge there is we want to get you better, quicker, get the fever off quicker than you would if you were taking an antibiotic. That really is or if you were doing nothing because many acute ailments get okay by themselves anyway because the body's immunity will look after it. So we need to get it in that short period of time. And then homeopathy works like has been your experience immediately, quickly, within two or three days, everything should settle. In fact, so. you remember in it was maybe about seven, eight years ago, we had this malaria and then followed by dengue epidemic in Mumbai, where we well, had a dengue, lot suppose, of yeah. patients getting admitted with platelet right. drops, et cetera, in ICUs. Right. At that time, I and I go through many of these phases of self-doubt, right, because we are uh, we are not the first choice system. So in that self-doubt, I said, and people don't come to us for malarias and denguees right. by right. themselves unless they're already our patients, right? So I took it as a challenge to see that, can we get this cured within three to five days? Because that's all the time we were going to get. Malaria, yes. if you're getting fever every day, say once in 24 hours and your platelets are dropping by third day, No family member, no friend is going to let you continue homeopathy if it hasn't stopped by then and the platelets haven't started going up, right? Right. So that was the challenge and I took up say about 20 cases at that time and except three cases, each one of them by day three, a couple by day five, the platelets had already started going up. So the response will depend on what the problem is and how quickly that you would come for that, so that understood. for that problem, so really understood, understood. the speed depends on the condition, the time you come, and then within that time, it can be three in some or five in some, depending on your own
0: basic immunity that is there. Um, what are the other myths or misconceptions you know that are around this whole field of homeopathy? Uh, you know, like as you started by saying sugar pills, but You know, I'm sure over the last three decades, you must have come across so many misconceptions or myths or questions. So what are those common myths and maybe you could, you know, put them to to rest today?
1: So I think um, one of the biggest things in the field of science, which percolates into especially our younger generation, right, who are today studying research and in the scientific world, is our medicines are diluted to a very high extent, going beyond the Avogadro's number, which means that the material substance, you can't really look and find through the microscope or through your gross chemical processes. And therefore, the question and the feeling in everybody, this is just placebo, this is just water or sugar, because there is no material substance left in this whole thing and mm-hmm. this has been the large area of questioning that has been there so uh, first of all why dilution right now um, you know that there is what's called and Schulz law or hormesis where not just in homeopathic community but in science it is recognized that toxic substances or biochemical substances in a diluted dose give a beneficial effect then in moderate dose gives an inhibitory effect, whereas yeah. in a stronger dose can give a toxic effect. So it's that U curve. So the dilutional dose being of some efficacy or benefit is not a new concept at all. It's just right. being applied to homeopathy and it's been proved by, as I said, Arn Schulz in Sweden primarily. So it's a sure. But the question about where, what is left, where is the medicine because you're diluting it to such a great extent. And that was uh, all the, the general conversation was always it's about nanoparticles, it's about energy, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. This, I think, was very clearly put to rest by Dr. Jayesh Balare and Dr. Prakash Chikramane from IIT Mumbai. And okay. just about, uh, say, five to seven years ago, Uh, This was Chikramani's thesis topic, where what they looked at and now they had the technology and now we have the technology. So they took the homeopathic medicines in higher potencies, much beyond Avogadro's number. So it's like one in hundred diluted 30 times becomes a 30 potency. One in 100 diluted 20 times, uh, 200 times becomes a 200 potency. So you can imagine the level of dilution. So what he did is in blind trial, he took these different ones and looked at the nanoparticles. So they have these microscopes where they can look at nanoparticles and nanoparticles give particular shapes. And they have charts. This shape is zinc. This shape, they have it for the mineral kingdom. Right. This shape is equal to this. So, watching, looking at the nanoparticles in that solution, he was able to match it to what is that original substance which was used to make this remedy. And he was correct in each of these, and it was completely a blinded, double blinded trial that was done. So, what they've found and they've proved is that the substances inside these diluted substances right. are nanoparticles. Right. And the way the uh, homeopathic medicine is made is in dilution. is not just diluted. There's a pro- process called succussion where basically the medicine is hit sure. against a hard substance and what happens is called froth flotation whereby the nanoparticles, because of some complicated stuff physics-wise, they right. rise to the surface. right? And it is that froth flocculation nanoparticle that is picked and used for the next dilution. Right? So that level, that dilution story is one of the biggest uh, myths that was there. But also, um, the way our homeopathic medicine is proved, like how we collect the symptomatology. Like I told you, a group of healthy people, not necessarily homeopaths, in either a single-blinded or double-blinded, take... Two pills, two small sugar pills that have the medicinal substance added to it. Right. And they have no idea. And they're just taking one dose of it, sometimes two or three, that's it. And right. then they are in separate, in their own homes, noting down any changes from their normal. Their normal symptoms are also recorded in the beginning. The And then later, all this is pooled together and uh, the person is watching. And it's amazing because I have done approving and i've researched 10 new medicines like that where i've been the researcher it is amazing to watch how perceptions in exactly the same sentences would be used by all 20 of the people like a particular thing and the same sentence they would use in their perception the same things they would begin to crave to eat the same time modality they will have diarrhea and rush to the loop Okay. the same group of symptoms that occur is and of course it is graded so you have to have it in maximum number of people to be considered to be part of the drug but the actual proving of this in itself and experiencing a proving i feel any one of us in the medical community or even normal people we should do this because for example when i first in the early phases when i was just a student and i was just A participant I had no idea one of the medicines that I took right and you you know my brother Sanjay he's six foot two and he used to weight lift at that time with some 10 and 20 kilo dumbbells which for me to lift was off beyond half like you know like couple of I was even thinner you remember everybody laughed at me so he would laugh at me and I couldn't lift those dumbbells now, in the process of this proving, which I didn't even think it was related to it, I was clearing up his room when he wasn't there. And I just lifted the dumbbells and I was kind of holding it up in my hand and walking. And then suddenly I looked at it and I was like, wow, man, I've become really strong. Must be the throwball I've been playing. Look, And then I lifted the other one and I could actually lift the two of them. And I thought, let him come back. I'll tell him, you know, how strong I've become. And I was so kicked about it. I also can't run. I walk, but I don't have the breath to run. And during that time, I was with a friend who wanted to run. And I normally do like one round of joggers park and stop because I can't do it. I did six rounds of joggers park. I still have that in front of me. And I was like, oh, God, you know, looks like finally my exercise after so many years is paying off. One month passed. The effect of that two pills weared off. And my brother came back and I was like, okay, let me show you, let me show you. And I'm trying to lift that and it doesn't move off the ground at all. And I was like, what the hell happened between that month and this? I couldn't run now. I can't lift these dumbbells. When of course we all got together and I looked at the notes, I realized that every one of those people had had that same experience. So not only that, but then I realized that our sense of the limitation of the human body is so limiting. I don't have the muscle strength. How will I lift it? I have to work for 20 years before I can lift it. I can't run. I don't have the capacity. I don't have the strength, stamina to run. But just those two pills changed the inner functioning to such a way that without any training, I just lifted those right Which means the capacity of the human body right. is far greater than what we actually mm-hmm. understand. and our own perception of it limits and that limitation can come as doctors even in healing because so many times we look at a thing and you say cure hoi nahi sakta. you know you see a right. report right. and you feel oh, oh yet. But how much of it is what is the possibility of the human body, is far greater than what we can think
0: and perceive. Yeah, sometimes our mind becomes an obstacle itself. Our mind case. becomes an
1: obstacle. Our perception becomes an obstacle, which yes, then yeah. affects the chemical changes and the
0: functions of our Yeah, body. and contrarily, I guess, uh, you know I've seen my daughters, uh, having had this habit from my mother, take nakaswamika, uh, you know, whenever they have any issue with the stomach, and, you know, it almost makes them feel instantly okay. And I would always think, you know, it's just psychological, I guess. But uh, what today you have proven that it's obviously there is a lot to it. It's not just sugar pills. There is a lot of nanoparticles doing their magic inside. Uh, so towards the end, let me ask you, uh, you know, every science has its own limitations. Are there any limitations that you find in homeopathy where you say that, okay, these are things that perhaps homeopathy will not be the first option or choice uh, or, that, you know, perhaps you need to look into this slightly differently? Any condition that, you know, maybe something that you've come across where you said I think homeopathy may not be the best choice and you're still doing your research on that?
1: So I think that in general, we are all doing research in the so-called difficult, incurable diseases. So cancers, HIV, right? There's kidney damaged kidney re- dialysis transplant right yeah. cirrhosis of the liver these are kind of conditions where the organ seems to be damaged to the point where we are not able to bring it back right um or the kind of effect on the body is such that the system isn't able to get out of it so these are things where uh, like everybody else in medicine we are also working uh, to see what we can do, what do we need to modify to be able to um, cure each of these cases? Because sure, I think, sure. like anyone in the field of medicine, we're always looking for that mo- point where we will cure everything, right? And therefore, technically, the limitation to us as homeopaths is not the disease. I think one of the key differences is in modern medicine and homeopathies. In modern medicine, it's often the disease, the diagnosis, the microbiology that you would say this is a cancer that has poor prognosis. In homeopathy, because our medicines, so in vitro, if I take the bacteria and I add the homeopathic medicine to it, I can't kill it. I need the body's immune system, the body's PNEI there to effect that cure and kill the bacteria. Because we are using the vitality the body's natural healing capacity our aim is to strengthen that and correct where anything may be wrong in that situation right so we the body's natural system is what we are using now if for example I'm dealing with a case that is very acute like in one of those malaria cases that I told you one of them was a young child that was a four or five-year-old child. And I took the symptoms of that child. But yes. I did not find that peculiar symptoms. Like I told you, that individual symptom which points to me where what his immunity needs. I was just getting common symptoms of malaria despite doing my you know doing everything now here was a case therefore in an acute scenario it wasn't just a cold cough a viral that would get okay anyway this was a malaria in a child and I was not getting the indication for the vitality now that could be my lacunae maybe another homeopath could have picked it up at that time or it simply is that at that moment the vitality wasn't strong enough To be able to fight it by itself. And this is the case, for example, I said, I'm not getting, I'm not seeing that medicine that will, I will confidently give you, right? And therefore you should take the allopathic medication. So in a case that is acute and life-threatening or life-damaging or organ-damaging, and I'm not getting the, I or other homeopaths are not getting that individualized symptom where we are seeing that not only are we targeting the malaria but that individual immunity because that's the one that's going to fight actually right then I would not take that chance and then I would say that this is what you then of course there are other things like cancers etc because of so many things including ethics including you see the research that we are able to do in numbers because modern medicine is the prevalent system of medicine so if a patient says, I'm going to do homeopathy, right? There's going to be so much uh, pressure and so much doubt, right? So we don't also have those numbers of cases that only come to us and don't do anything else and only do homeopathy. Sure. To be able to say that, can we cure this kind of a condition completely, right? So anyway, the condition is bad, considered incurable, right? Right there isn't enough research data as our first job is to be a physician. Second is to be the homeopath. So we would perhaps leave it to the patient or weigh and pros and cons. And in those scenarios say, okay, let's do both in this particular situation. Right.
0: So that brings me to, you know, areas of uh, research or advancement that, you know, homeopathy is uh, focusing on and you particularly, I know are very, very research oriented. So what has been your, area of focus, what are some of the new advances or recent advances that have happened in homeopathy?
1: So, um, as I said, moving towards recognizing and being able to look at the components of the PNEI system as medicine and neuroscience is able to do today is a big game changer. I believe it's a huge game changer for the field of medicine. Um, That's something which I think that where we are going to is one of the questions is how does the homeopathic medicine actually work? Where and which cell is it actually changing? Has been very difficult to document because of these, the nanoparticles, the subtle. We didn't know these receptors until 30 years ago, right? So we didn't know these neurotransmitters until 30 years ago. So we we didn't know where to look and what to look for. Today, we know what to look for. What we are now looking for is to get an immunologist, a microbiologist, a neurologist, a homeopath, and a modern medicine on the same page. So we could carry out researches where we are actually being able to document where is the solution being targeted. And I think that would help us to fine-tune and uh, effect cures in many more cases. But the one other thing that is of particular interest to me. And it is something that I in the field of homeopathy have been working about is something I want to share. When I talked yes. about PNEI, the persons who are most prominent in this are called Adder and Cohen. And they have okay. a book in on this as well called the Psychoneuroimmunology. Now what experiment they did is they took a group of 100 rats and gave them a very strong anti-cancer drug whose natural response is to drop the white blood cell count, right? Sure. And what they then did is the Pavlovian model of conditioning, where every time they gave these rats this cancer injection, they also put saccharine on their tongue. Okay. And they did this repeatedly. After significant repetitions, measuring in each of the rats on every day, The drop in the white blood cell, the immune response drop that happened in each of them. They took away the injections. And in these group of 100 rats only put saccharine on their tongue and repeatedly did this. Measuring in each of these rats again, the drop in that immune system response. And the immune system response in these rats, after being conditioned in this way, was the same with saccharine. Just saccharine saccharine, as it were when they were being given the actual cytotoxic medicine, the actual chemotherapy medicine, right? And of course, in the control group, when you just give saccharine to a rat, nothing happens. So what they did is they've shown us how I believe this, this is the model for how our systems could get altered. What is that bug? Like when I told you, our body is a machine functioning. Every organ has a neurological circuit. It has neurotransmitters. It has hormones. All coming and making sure it affects. At the backdrop of it is our genes. Right. right? So that's the whole process. The gene is the computer program. Then it comes out into your nerves. The nerves send it to the chemicals hormones and then your machine functions in that superb time-coordinated fashion. Now, what is that bug in the circuit? And Adder, I believe, Adder and Cohen have actually shown us what is that bug in the circuit. That in childhood, when we are building many new circuits, we are learning everything. We learn how to walk, which is a complete automated circuit of angle of the body, how much you're going to lift your legs, how to chew food. We're learning so many things that at that point, there is a possibility of coincidentally, if something is in that time and place at the same time, it becomes a bug in the circuit. And then that bug will get triggered. And the system is now in a loop because even though the actual stimuli, the actual cytotoxic substance is removed, the body will still respond as if it is getting that kind of strong cytotoxic. Now, this could be from environmental chemical. It could be from a stress situation. So I'm in an actual stress situation and my chemicals accordingly have risen. But there is some random object that in this as this model becomes part of my stress circuit
0: sure
1: now later in life that innocuous unimportant thing becomes my trigger and it keeps triggering me and every time it triggers it becomes stronger and stronger as a trigger sure right and then my blood pressure sugar will keep going up even though the actual stimuli is no longer there so this is this model today is being used in pharmacy in pharmaceutical industries to try to reduce the quantum of the chemicals used as treatment. So very strong cytotoxic drugs, they are trying to give some innocuous thing on the side so that later on they can reduce this quantity, use this as the... But I believe that the effect and the actual potential of this is far deeper. It is actually the point of where the disease probably originates. Then you take it one step further to epigenetics, where... Earlier, it was you have a gene, you have blood pressure, family history, you are going to get blood pressure. Today, epigenetics says there's a biological switch that has to be put on. These biological switches are triggered by stresses, by neurochemicals, by neurotransmitters, right? So there is a, I think that we are at the cusp of either we would be too frightened at this change and then ignore it and push it away under the carpet just for science and Nobel Prizes and continue what we are doing. Or it will require a complete shift in the perception of what disease is and to look and to see at that. Where homeopathy is concerned, that's where I'm looking at. That the remedy and what I found through the work that I've done is that the remedy that we are prescribing after that intense case taking I can trace it back to this object as the Pavlovian conditioning trigger, that there is a connect between these two. So I'm seeing that connect in the remedy that I prescribe. but I believe that it's potential if we are able to research this with the actual neurochemicals, with the actual functional MRIs that we could actually study what's happening in each neural circuit, Mm Will be a game changer, and that's much, where I much. think
0: uh, I'm looking to go. Wonderful, wonderful. I think um, the way I would like to summarize this talk is that I think while you know we think in modern medicine we are moving towards personalized medicine. I think homeopathy has been practicing that for a very long time, and I think you are just going to take it to the next level with the research that you just spoke about. That what is the real trigger, and you know if that trigger can be you know addressed early on, I think, you know, the the stimuli and the response the body makes to that can be completely changed and controlled. So, you know, amazing thoughts. Let me end by asking you a personal question, you know, that this whole podcast is about exposing people to the various burden uh, we have as a country on, you know, our healthcare ecosystem. What are you doing to unburden your own health? How are you looking at keeping fit? Physically, mentally, emotionally, what are you doing to, what is your mantra for unburdening your own health? Hmm. I. Uh,
1: that's a very, very interesting question. And so one is, I think that um, exercise, I'm, I'm right. going to the adjuvant things, right? So the exercise, of course, is very important. And I exercise six times a week. I'm now doing a little bit of Pilates as well, which I enjoy. Right. Um, I realize that exercise is also a way in which I'm totally focused in the here and the now. sure and I think that the moment when we are most healthy is when we are completely focused in the here and now, the mind isn't it's the body and the mind are not, Pulling in different directions. True, it's not true. like my body is doing X and my mind is buzzing on t- into another tangent and creating. So this is that moment where everything—my conscious, my unconscious, my body function—is in complete sync. So exercise, I feel, not only changes our uh, you know metabolism in that fashion, but brings
0: that to us. Brings the mind and body together.
1: And the other is breathing. Because uh, like we talked about the fight and-flight mechanism, yeah. where our sympathetic nervous system is gone into an overdrive. And therefore, the old traditional Pranayam system of breathing sure it sure. is the only, only control we have over our autonomic nervous system. We can't control the heartbeat. I can't say, "Let right. me slow down my heartbeat, let me slow my digestion, but I can slow my breath. And sure. as I slow down the breath, I'm stimulating the parasympathetic and the vagus and bringing that system down to normal. Then I take my homeopathic remedy. Often uh, I come into my clinic and I, because when we are getting into our ill not well, see illness is not just development of symptoms. It is a state of not being okay. And we recognize it in people. I'm sure you wake up and one day you look at your daughter and say, she's looking, she's happy today. She's good. And the other day we say, you woke up on the wrong side of the bed. Right? Right. Which actually means, and your perception of the world and everything is haywire at that time. Often you don't recognize it, but I walk into my clinic and if I'm in that kind of mode, my will tell me diplomatically and after an hour would you like to take your remedy and I'd look at them and say why what's wrong with me and then I realize you know I've been kind of completely off so then I would take my remedy Um, I also write down things that uh, come to my mind and thought which make me recognize so um, one is we all like we said there is a perception that we have of reality that changes the way we respond and therefore the way our body responds. And so often we justify that perception of reality. So I'll say, I was irritated with XYZ because that person behaved like that, right? Right? And there's always something you can find in somebody. There's always a reason. But then I started start turning that towards myself because yesterday I didn't get irritated with that guy, right? right? Today right. I got irritated with him. So it's not just him, there's something I'm perceiving. So what is it that where is it coming from me at that conscious level? And then I trace it, try to trace it back to where is that system in a loop in me, from which point where it's so much a part of me that I think it is normal. Right, so. And it yet affects my daily functions and affects my systems. So, I also think that uh, the environment around us is very important. Health, I think, is mental, physical, it's societal, as well as it's environmental. So, I so. think at post-50, I think we all come into that moment where I feel there are some things around us that if I don't do something about, I will look back on my deathbed and say why didn't I do that so I'm doing that and environmentally if our environment is not healthy there's just no way each individual one of us can be healthy so these are the different things that I am trying to do to reach a point of health for self and others I'm still trying and
0: uh, I look forward to I look forward to catching you on the beach soon for an early morning walk that has been pending for a long time. But uh, this has been this has been great. Um, you know, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. And that's a wrap for our episode today. Thank you so much for listening. New episodes are out every alternate Tuesday. If you like this episode, don't forget to subscribe to our show. You can listen to our show on all major podcasting platforms, like Google podcast, Apple podcast, and wherever you listen to your podcast for. If you are an Apple or an iOS user, you can share your ratings and reviews on the Apple podcast app. If you have any questions related to health or would like to share your feedback, you can reach me on my social media handles at Dr. Sanjay Arora on LinkedIn and Facebook and Dr. Underscore Sanjay Arora on Instagram.